heavily, I'm a clown. Welcome back to another episode Bitcoin Echo Chamber. It's a show about Bitcoin. Today I had on my friend Eric, who I met in Miami. Him and I had talked a little bit on Twitter, but we got talking in Miami and he showed me this book that he'd been writing. And I was like, dude, we got to get you on the pod. This is great. So our conversation, I think it speaks for itself. I think you guys are going to like it. We get into the weeds a little bit. Definitely make sure you check out his book. It is down in the show notes down below. There is a free version and a paid version. The paid version is the final drafts. It's a little bit more polished up, a little bit more up to date. But I think you guys should go out of your way to support Eric and his work. If you can, you know, no obligation. But if you can, you know, I think it's worth it because he put a lot of work and research into writing this book. And I think it's a really great piece. I, I think it's one of the only pieces that I've come across so far that really, really gets into the weeds of uh, the history of banking and money and relates it all back to Bitcoin, right? Which is what we're all here for. So let's jump into my interview with Eric and I'll come back and hang out with you guys at the end. In case you guys didn't know, we've had the opportunity to team up with River Financial. They've been awesome enough to sponsor a number of the projects Ben and I work on, such as WTF Happened in 1971 and our newsletter. They're offering all Bitcoin Echo Chamber listeners one week of zero fee buy and sell orders and up to $10,000 in volume if you sign up with our link river.com BEC. River Financial is a newer Bitcoin-only financial institution. They're offering a growing suite of tools for buying, selling, tracking, and using Bitcoin with the goal of earning their users' trusts. I've spent some time getting to know the team at River, and if you have any doubts, you can feel free to do exactly the same thing. You can speak to a human being through a call, email, chat, or even tweet the CEO, Alex Leishman, and he will respond to you personally. We wouldn't endorse their product if it wasn't something we were comfortable using ourselves, and recently made the switch to River as our go-to brokerage. They're now available in over 30 U.S. states and just recently added Hawaii and Arizona to that list. New states are being added at a frantic pace. In fact, literally while I was recording this ad, they added a 31st state, which is Georgia. So keep your eyes on them if you're not yet supported. If you want to check it out, you can use our link river.com BEC, that's Bravo Echo Charlie, and get your one week of zero fee trades and up to $10,000 in volume. Eric, how you doing, man? I'm doing good, man. Um... It is. Uh, it's a beautiful day in Denver, Colorado. Well, not not exactly, but it's uh, it's better than a lot of other places. When I was down in Miami, um, I enjoyed the weather, but I kind of missed it back here. Yeah, it's pretty hot in Miami, huh? Yeah, it is pretty hot down there. Um, it's sweet there, though. I did have a great time down there. It was um, a good time. Yeah, Wait, the city's awesome. You and I uh, had our first real meeting. I mean, I think we had maybe exchanged a little bit on Twitter, but. We, mm-hmm. we we got to meet in Miami, and I uh, got to talking, and I was like, "Well, man, you should come on the podcast. That'd be that'd be a fun time." Yeah, yeah, and here we here we are. That's right. Um, and you were talking to, before we started recording. You were talking about the serendipity. I was calling it the synchronicity, whereas like you're meeting people, and you're like, "Wow, this guy is basically me in a different body," or right. or we have a lot of external variables in common. Um, it's just very unusual the way Bitcoin brings people like that together from across the country to one spot. Totally. Especially because like, I feel like Bitcoin is filled with a lot of people that aren't used to that very much. Um, 
there's definitely a lot more from my experience, kind of more oddball types that enter Bitcoin from a lot of different backgrounds. And uh, when you go to a conference like that, it's like, wow, there here's somebody else who I'm much more similar to. And that's more rare. That is probably hits the nail right on the head, I think, because yeah. I've, I've always kind of been an outsider in most everything. So to meet right. somebody who has a very similar background to me and a lot of the same ideologies is right. Odd. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's kind of fun. <laughs> well, so we're here to talk about you, man. Um, and I, with, with, I don't, you know, I, I hate these, I hate scripted conversations. That, that's how I used to do my show. I used to do like really, really scripted questions, which I think is good. Some of the time, uh, sort of just depends, I guess, on like what the topic is and, and who the guest is and, and what their expectations are. But not too long ago, you shared with me the rough drafts of this book you've been written, you've been working on, and you wrote it in the series of essays uh, that you published on your website. And I've taken the chance to read through it. And I was pretty blown away, man. Um, Thanks, man. So before I guess before we get into the book, like, y- you come from private equity, is that right? Right. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll just kind of jump into like my high level background. Um, so yeah, I was out of, uh, you know, born in Denver, Colorado. And then I went to, um, school at Creighton university and I was a double major in finance and economics there. Um, kind of back when I was in college, like, you know, my, you know, my freshman year of college, I was, I had my sights set on working in the private equity industry and, um, you know, that was for a bunch of reasons, kind of, you know, back in school, some better than others. Um, some of them were more just being 18 years old and more naive. Um, other ones were good um, in terms of I thought it was a good industry to, you know, cut your teeth in and get experience in. Um, but yeah, so I kind of had my sights set on that. And then out of undergrad, I went to a company that kind of sets people up well for a career in that area is FTI Consulting. Um and uh, we we're corporate finance or restructuring group. So we were kind of like advisors that would get brought in in a variety of different like challenging business situations. And it's like, it's kind of a weird area. Like um, it's not like a traditional management consulting firm. People think of like, you know, strategy consulting. We weren't doing as much of that. Um, and we're also kind of providing a lot of services um, and competing with like investment banks in the area that we're at. So it's kind of like this overlap between the two worlds that kind of needs to happen when you're um, when you're dealing with companies that are in like distress situations. And uh, so I was there for about two and a half years. And um, so it sounds you know, like bar rescue, except the finance version. Right, right. But for like, you know, large scale corporations. Exactly. Yeah. So we were like the largest restructuring firm in the world. Um, we would deal with and most major bankruptcies we were kind of working on in some form. Um, and, uh, you know, you get to see a lot of what goes wrong in those industries. So I think a lot of the symptoms of uh, what's been going on in our economy are pretty front and center when you're dealing with these types of companies. And you see it, you see a ton of malinvestment. Um, you see how companies try to roll over their debt and they try to, um, you know, they can actually, it's effective. They can stay alive for pretty long periods of time doing um, very uh, creative financing situations. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you, you kind of just see, you see a lot of, uh, you know, just how bloated and inefficient some of these companies are. And, you know, you're often asking yourself, like, how are, you know, why is this happening? Mm-hmm. And, um, but yeah, I got, I got a lot of experience in that area and, um, and it was good. And then I, um, 
you know, I was working on my CFA while I was there. And then I got to uh, uh, a private equity firm on Denver and um, we kind of specialized in doing corporate carve outs, which is uh, there was a, there's a firm out of LA called platinum equity. that kind of invented this guy, Thomas Gores um, who owns the Detroit Pistons now because it was a pretty successful investment strategy. And basically in the private equity world, um, oftentimes larger enterprises want to divest a specific um division of the company, which comes with a lot of problems because, um, you know, when you take out a piece of the pie, there's a lot of functions that are part of the larger enterprise that need to be used to stand up the rest of that piece of the pie. So when you remove it from the company, it no longer has those supporting functions. So as a buyer of that, you need to be like, okay, well, you know, I'm buying this business. It's based on a certain valuation. And, um, without these supporting functions, what is it actually worth? And how much is it going to cost me to replicate those things in the new business? Um, and that's just not nasty from like an operational standpoint, but it gets nasty from an accounting standpoint because uh, there's a lot of assumptions that go into the accounting of overhead, you know, corporate costs and what divisions they allocate those costs to. And depending on those assumptions could really affect the profitability of that division significantly. Mm. Um, so a lot of what we would deal with is negotiating down what those assumptions are, um, because that stuff gets, you know, played with pretty heavily. If you're trying to sell a company, the first thing you're going to do is start playing with the accounting to make sure that the, uh, the cash flow looks as high as it possibly can be. Um, so we, we were kind of buyers that specialized in that area and, uh, basically, um, platinum equity, they, um, Sorry, I, I think I left this out earlier, but like, so Platinum Equity grew to be very large with that investment strategy. And um, through that process, my bosses, they worked under that guy, Thomas Gores, and then they, uh, them along with some other guys that they worked with all kind of spun off and did their own like middle market funds um, that kind of, you know, were around the country and we were one of them out in Denver. And um, yeah, so I was there for about a year and a half. And like, part of my story is, um, all while all this was going on, you know, I discovered Bitcoin when I was like a senior in college. And so I, what, uh, for our perspective, what uh, time frame, like what year? Uh, so that was 2015. Okay. And what years were you working in private equity? Um, that was like end of 2017 to end of 2019. Okay. Continue. Yeah. Um, so back in you know 2015, I discovered Bitcoin, um, but I wrote it off as a speculative investment. And I was kind of like, you know, I applied the framework of thinking that I'd gotten from undergrad. I applied the framework of thinking that like the CFA curriculum was giving me. And um, what, what framework was that um, for those of us that haven't been through? Totally, totally. Well, it's just like, it, it's not even, um, it's not anything totally specific. It's just like um, when, most people that I had talked to in that world, what I did is the first thing I do when I hear about investment, I say, okay, well, how can I measure its value? Um, and that's kind of like step one before I want to get into whether or not it's a good investment. And um, with, uh, you know, with every sort of model that you're kind of taught in school and in more complex areas, everything's kind of centered around the idea of finding some sort of way um, to create a fundamental valuation based on future cash flows of an investment. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a, you know, with Bitcoin, you, you can't do that. And that was why I said, oh, well, you know, it's speculative mm -hmm. when really I was just, and I found this later, which you, you, know, weren't, I was just you weren't a, wrong. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's not that it's just, um, 
it's a paradigm shift mm-hmm. um, because all of those types of methodologies, you're trying to assess market value because we're trying to look at a company or we're trying to look at a good and we're trying to assess what it's going to be worth in the future and what its value in a market will be. Um, and it's not to say that, uh, you know, it's impossible to try to apply a framework like that to Bitcoin. But what makes a lot more sense is once you have the paradigm shift to know you need to look at Bitcoin from the perspective of monetary value. Mm-hmm. And once you apply that framework, which is more of a qualitative framework um, there where, you know, you can assess it somewhat quantitatively, but um, it's, it's a little foggy. Um, but when you apply the monetary value framework to Bitcoin, then the picture gets a lot clearer and you can be like, okay, I can look at these like qualitative aspects that make something a better or worse monetary good. And, um, and if there's some sort of, you know, maybe on the margin, it's much harder to compare goods because it's more qualitative. But if you have like some sort of, um, you know, a large difference of like a significant magnitude, then you can be like, okay, you know, I, I can get pretty comfortable that this is a pretty superior monetary good. Um, so how, how did you make that leap? Uh, how did you go yeah. from fundamental value analysis to the Warren Buffett style investing who, you know, like Warren Buffett's a great example. He's like, oh, yep. I, I don't like Bitcoin. It has no cash flows. Um, yep. How did you, how did you make that leap? And do you see... I tend to think that a lot of these, these traditional investors who are still sort of poo-pooing Bitcoin are not able to make that leap or, or they, they don't have enough of the information, like the information that you wrote in your book, uh, to, to even recognize the paradigm shift or, or see Bitcoin as a monetary good. They, they just view it as purely speculative. To- totally agree. I totally agree. And, um, and it's something, it's a battle that I kind of, once I started to make the shift myself, I realized really quickly, like, this is a battle that I need to kind of fight because um, there's a bunch of guys out there making the same mistake that I made for years. And like when I made the shift, uh, it, it, you know, it happened a bit, you know, it was kind of gradually then suddenly, I think um, I pretty much what happened is when I was working at, you know, my first firm FTI, um, you know, there was uh, one of my cube mates, he was super into Bitcoin and he kept kind of pushing it on me. And like, you know, the first few times he did it, um, I was just like, oh, no, man, like I'm staying away from that kind of stuff. That's not the type of investing I do. And, uh, you know, after a while, he's like, look, man, like we should just sit down. He starts trying to show me some like YouTube videos that are like technical explanations. And he was much more like interested in like the technical side of how it worked. So he kind of had a... Uh, he wasn't necessarily, he wasn't speaking my language as much about it. So it's like, I don't really give a shit about how good the tech is. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know how to get there from an investment perspective, but he did interest me and he kind of kept pushing me to look into it. So I started reading into it more and, um, uh, you know, there, there, there was just a bunch of sources that I started to dig into and I was kind of like, um, Oh, this is interesting. Once I started to think about the uh, freedom aspect of it, that's what opened my mind to new concepts because I've always been uh, like one of the first, I think the first economics book I read was uh, um, Freedom and Capitalism by Milton Friedman. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always been kind of like the libertarian mindset, which I think most people in this industry kind of are. Um, So once I started hearing those types of words and what I was reading, then my ears perked up a bit more and I was kind of like, okay. And I wanted to get deeper. And, um, and then I started digging into monetary properties and, uh, recalling, you know, I, I, like in my undergraduate education, we touched on some of that, but it wasn't some sort of highlight of the curriculum. It was like, you know, kind of just briefly, uh, give it a cursory view and then, you know, moved on in some of the curriculum, but, you know, I was familiar enough to be like, okay, yeah, I remember this, like money needs to be this. And then, um, 
and then, yeah, I started digging into it from there. And, uh, and once I got deep enough to where I needed to cover a lot of areas, which took years. Um, but I think like once I kind of had the money idea in my head, I didn't know how to really articulate it yet, but, um, I did know that I was like, okay, there is something here. Mm-hmm. And then I started spending a lot more time learning about, uh, Bitcoin as well as, um, you know, altcoins and trying to figure, you know, get, get my head around all of those things and just be like, okay, well, you know, cause the, the first question pretty much everybody asks once they discover whether it's Bitcoin or any, any other coin is, um, you know, which one's going to be the best. And then, right. you know, that, that leads people down a bunch of different avenues that, you know, you it probably aren't the most efficient way or uh, into the, help. the face of the affinity marketing scam, the jaws of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Right. You get led into the pit of death and like a bunch of people go in there and um, yeah. And you know, that's hard. Like I, I, I don't have any sort of like, I think even if you put, the best literature in front of somebody and they are, you know, they have like the mental fortitude to just sit there and like read it as opposed to, you know, get caught by something kind of shiny in the beginning. Um, even if they do have that, I think eventually, you know, people have to go and they have to understand all these things for themselves and they have to get really deep. And, you know, I, I, I don't have any sort of answer. What's the best yeah. solution yeah. for any of that, but I found like really, you, you need to really take time to understand how Bitcoin works specifically. And like, yep some of the politics and history of Bitcoin, right? Like why certain design decisions were made. You need to understand the concept of trade-offs and technical design, technical Mm. implementation. And then from there, you kind of need to mostly use heuristics, right? Like, because I can't sit down and read the white paper for all 10,000 cryptocurrencies. It's totally, it's just, I just can't. Um, Totally. And yeah, maybe there's one out there that's like, oh, it, it does everything. And it's, a hundred orders of magnitude better or whatever. I, mm-hmm. it's, I find that very unlikely. I find that less likely, you know, than, than a lot of other things. Um, but I, instead of thinking that it, with that framework, I just use heuristics and I say, well, the chances of Bitcoin being replaced by any of these other projects is, is practically zero. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And, and like, and I, I think there's that framework. And I also think like, I, you know, I think on the other end, I think that there is still a bit of confusion going on around um, a lot of these other like altcoins and stuff are really just functioning as things that have existed in our current system, but are being replicated in this new system. Mm-hmm. And they're functioning like structured products or like an equity security. And, you know, whether or not they say that yeah. is a equity different story. offerings with no <laughs> linkage to, you know, cash flows or dividends or Right, 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 right. Yep. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's just, there are all these experimental things and it's kind of like, I think, I think a lot of people, one thing I see, uh, common as I feel like a lot of people kind of conflate some of these things with, as if they're trying to be money and it's like, I don't think they're trying to be money. Um, but I also think that, um, they're, you know, they're, they're not trying to do something that is, uh, um, in competition necessarily with Bitcoin. Um, and if they are trying to do something that's like not in competition with Bitcoin, are they doing it well? And I haven't seen anything that I've been like, yes. Uh, but I, I'm, I am not of the mindset that I think that there, I, I, you know, I think that there's going to be and whatever they call them, you know, these could be the, a lot of these things are misnomers because the word token is used all the time. Mm. But like, um, I think that there's going to be other assets that exist in a digital system and they're going to be structured ultimately, you know, hopefully by how the market thinks that that makes the most sense. But like, you know, let's take away altcoins for a second. Let's just look at Bitcoin. 
let's assume a world where, um, you know, Bitcoin exists as money. It's like, okay, well, all these other products and financial services that exist in our current system, those need to be replicated in on top of Bitcoin for it to be successful. And um, how they do that in a digital format, whether they use it in a, you know, token or um, some other, you know, type of software protocol is, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. But I think that there's, you know, plenty of value outside of just something existing as money that is going to exist in some new form and kind of sifting through the minutia and trying to figure out what people are trying to do and try to make that happen um, without a lot of these misnomers that are popping up um, is kind of challenging. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I look at it a little bit differently. Um, so I see a lot of these tokens, right? And you use the word token. And I think that that's the correct terminology because what all of these tokens, and again, I call them affinity marketing scams. Every single one of them technically speaking, is a quasi money um, in some way, you know, whether they're upfront and open about the fact that their token is a monetary medium is irrelevant because every single one of them in some mm -hmm. way, shape or form functions as a monetary medium. And really all of the marketing aspect goes into trying to build some sort of utility that allegedly is going to drive mm -hmm. some intrinsic demand for the underlying quasi money, right? That their mm -hmm. network is tied to. And they say, well, you know, if, if we have this monetary token, which the the smart marketers they're good they don't they don't market it as a money because then they're compared directly to bitcoin and everyone's like mm. well everyone knows bitcoin is is the digital money right the digital gold um, mm. and they don't want to be compared to bitcoin so they they play this game smoke and mirrors where it's like well our monetary or our our digital token our digital asset is based around this um decentralized finance casino where you can come in and and buy these 100x leverage trading bot algorithm tokens and swap in and out of, you know, and, and really all they're trying to do is obfuscate the fact that their token is a monetary token. Um, they're just trying to supplement its demand with some sort of external utility. Totally. Totally. And yeah, it's, it's some sort of like restricted monetary medium. I, and I, I totally agree. And I think that there's tons of scams. And I think that, um, you know, and even the ones where their valid attempts are still they're you know, not marketing it as being as uh, risky as it actually is. And um, I, I totally agree. I, I think that one people thing that people kind of lose sight of in this space, though, is that's business. That's how every industry that's just starting works. Like, I mean, there's tons of scams that exist in every industry and regulators step in as things get more mature. And I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying like, you know, the, the, this formula has existed in so many different ways in a lot of different industries for a pretty long time. And the right. goal is to like focus on building things and, you know, letting, you know, people information transparency is key. Um, but I think you need to approach that correctly. Um, and, and that's, yeah, uh, for me, having a background in trading penny stocks actually really gave me an advantage over people in this because mm -hmm. I understood, okay, well, like 99%, if not literally every single stock traded on the OTC is for the most part, a shell company that mm -hmm. some CEO somewhere is using to, to move debt around or to, you know, to restructure like his own portfolio. And every now and then maybe like if he, if he's really a little slimy, like he might drop a PR about how the company is getting acquired by X, Y, and Z, or about how mm -hmm. they're buying back some of their own shares and just to pump, you know, and it's all yep. it's pump and dumps and it's yep. um, market manipulation and it's lots of slimy, often completely untrue PRs and marketing campaigns. And there's no real value being created, right? But like that doesn't stop people from speculating on these shell companies 
Um, yeah, they're virtually worth nothing. And right. some people make fortunes doing it, but they're, mm. you know, the, the very different world than like where you come from, where you're looking at a business and you're looking at its ability to produce cash flow, and you're looking at like you know the value of its assets and the value of mm. its capital goods and all those types of things. Mm. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and, and like the, these scams are just going to exist. But one thing I want to go back to is, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, to the point that you're making about how they're like this restrictive medium that uh, is being tied to some sort of utility. It's like, yeah, and that's that's pretty much like the airline miles argument. Hmm. And it's like, yeah, and it's I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, but airline miles have value They're They are a large market. And that model works in certain industries and people demand that apparently. Mm, right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I'm the not an expert being nobody speculates on airline miles because they know that that would be ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of interesting. I wonder how, uh, well, I, the, I guess the big difference is that there's no like secondary market. If there was a secondary market for airline miles where people could speculate, I'd actually be curious how that would pan out. It'd be interesting. Yeah. I mean, I would they, imagine, everything's fixed, you know? Yeah. I would imagine yeah. they'd find like a, a slight dis. you know, it'd probably be similar to how the gift card peer to peer markets work, right? The, the mm -hmm. gift cards trade at like a slight discount to the cash value equivalent, just because they have, you know, less utility of value. Yeah. The, yep, the cash restricted. equivalent value. Right. So right. You'd probably see a similar thing with the airline miles. They, they trained at like a 10% discount depending on where they could find, you know, like enough um, volume. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. So like, you know, I, I don't know, like the, my, my stance on a lot of that stuff is uh, I do, I think that, uh, you know, it's bit, Bitcoin is totally what I'm going to focus on. Everything else is like, you know, I don't, I don't under most of it. I don't understand well enough. I have to use heuristics too. Uh, but I think a lot, pretty much all of it, you can kind of start at the beginning and be like, okay, I can apply these heuristics. And um, you know, if I can't get my head around the monetary piece, then why would I invest a significant amount into something like that? It's just way too much risk for me. Um, yeah. But uh, um, the, the, the kind of like the, the maximalist idea of like nothing else will have value and stuff like that. I'm not totally on board with that yet. Um, I just, uh, we'll, we'll get you there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I'm interested to see how this, stuff all pans out. And, you know, it's, I think the biggest thing that Bitcoin benefits is it's got this like, you know, full-time industry of just like R and D going on in the altcoin market. And uh, a lot of that stuff's just getting exported into the Bitcoin system in a gradual manner, which is pretty cool. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't, I'd be curious to know about any types of examples of that. I know, I know you're speaking, saying that generally, but um, I don't even, I don't even know that that's the case to be honest. <laughs> Oh, really? Well, yeah. I mean, just like uh, a lot of the, um, I feel like with what's been going on and yeah, you know, of course, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm speaking generally, but like from what I've seen going on with building on top of Bitcoin and the goals that they want to achieve, like we already have test cases on Ethereum of being able to look at, you know, decentralized exchanges and, um, you know, what people think of, um, you know, what, what, what's garnering kind of like real demand. Hmm. So that I think that these things, it's all valuable information that can be used by people to say like, okay, if we wanted to build something on top of Bitcoin, that would be in a similar manner, for example, in a future world where, uh, you know, people are actually creating securities on top of Bitcoin and they're using smart contracts that are executing upon those things. Um, we can draw upon a lot of these structures and look at the failures that have been made mm -hmm. and uh and we can replicate that knowledge in the current system and i think that's pretty valuable yeah um, i think that's a good point yeah um but yeah 
yeah. So, anyways, we don't have to we don't have to get too far down any sort of like shit coining hole. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's okay. It's a Bitcoin echo chamber, people. <laughs> right, um, right, right. <laughs> so, all right, all right. So about about this book, right? So, all right. So, let me see if I followed your timeline. So you found out. Yeah, about I, I kind of got a 2015. You weren't really into it, but you had a coworker who kind of like kept pushing your buttons on it, and then. 2017 2018 time frame is when you're so yeah so where did bitcoin fit in as far as your journey in private equity goes and, and how yeah. did you get to the point where you wrote this book <laughs> so i um you know over the years kind of in 2017 during the market rally and all that i uh i definitely was getting a lot more interested back then and um and then going into 2018 i i, I was kind of spending a lot of my time outside of work um just reading about Bitcoin. And um, there wasn't much time, but it was something where it was, it was really intriguing to me. Like I remember having the thought back in 2017, like, oh, like, you know, what if I like went to go work in this industry? And, um, but like, I'd put so much, I'd invested so much time into my career and getting to that point already, it just wasn't like a plausible idea in my mind. It was more mm -hmm. just kind of like a, you know, crazy thing, you know, to think about. But um, as I spent, more time just kind of think about it in the background. Um, it just kind of like over time started to grow more and more in my mind. And then, um, you know, uh, it was kind of like a big, it was, it was two things. There's there the career decisions side of it too, where like, you know, I'd been working in this traditional finance world and um, I kind of had a vision for what I thought that would be. And then when I spent, again, you know, I'd been working there for like four and a half, almost five years or something before I resigned. And, um, you know, I kind of got to a point in my career where, you know, I was like, okay, I was at the firm I was at and um, my future started to have pretty definable features at a certain point where I was like, okay, you know, it's going to be X amount of years. I get to this point in the career and, uh, you know, I'll be a partner at this point. Um, and, it, you know, I'll probably be some overweight guy with marital problems who is, uh, <laughs> you know, who drives a really uh, nice car, who drives a really nice car. Yeah. And I was like, do, exactly. And I was like, do I, is that, do I care about that? Like, um, is, uh, is being like wealthy from something, um, what matters to me. And I very quickly realized how much I actually didn't really care that much about that. And I, it, honestly, it just wasn't a question I asked myself that much. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it was more just like, I just kind of always assumed like, cause I decided way back when that I was going to do this. And, uh, and I'd gone so far down that route. It just wasn't really a thought in my mind. And then I started to kind of question that for the first time. And I was like, okay, well, what do I want? And like, I mean, the big thing was, you know, I started to think about what we did as a business and I was like, okay, like if I'm going to be on my deathbed one day, am I going to be like, am I proud of extracting wealth through negotiations and uh, operational restructuring of companies that we buy? for my entire life. And it's not to say that the business doesn't add value. It mm -hmm. does add value. It's just not really creating value. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, well, that's not totally true. It is, um, but not, not in the same way that, um, not something, not in a way that I was totally passionate about. Mm -hmm. uh, when I see all the ways, like most of the companies we're dealing with, it's like, you know, I think most of you guys should just kind of close up shop and go mm -hmm. into like some other new industry that's, you know, much more value. Um, I think a lot, of, like I was saying earlier, I think a lot of this stuff was symptoms of like malinvestment that was mm -hmm. going on. Um, but, you know, that that was one of the things that really started to make me think. And, you know, at first I was kind of like looking at firms in other areas and, uh, and I just, you know, it took me a few months and I was questioning it for a while. And then the idea of like, okay, well, like, look, you can, you can do whatever you want. And um, there are kind of two things. Uh, 
there, there was the Bitcoin piece. Well, there are three things. So I, there was kind of a story that I wanted to tell about financial markets and, uh, and our economy that I don't think was really being told, um, at least in the world that I came from. And uh, there was the piece about, you know, Bitcoin's involvement and all of that. And, uh, and then the other big thing is um, if you, you know, no, no offense to anybody listening in private equity, but like when you go into this industry, like there's not a lot of personalities in this industry. Um, and uh, that, that was one piece where like, you know, the day was, it was much more of like a robotic kind of work style. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, what was interesting, I, I wanted to do into something where there was a media aspect to it and uh, where I could I, I could kind of be open and transparent with people um, and I could give my honest opinion about things, hmm. which kind of in this world wasn't really part of the job. And um, so it was kind of like the, when I kind of went down, you know, I took myself back to first principles and I was kind of like, well, what do I want? Um, those were kind of the three areas that I started to focus on. And then it got me to a point where I was like, okay, like, you know, I, I worked pretty, pretty frequently um, at that job and I didn't really have much time in the evenings to really work on anything else. Um, and I kind of got to a point where I was like, okay, like I'm in a, I'm in a good enough position. And I talked to, you know, um, uh, you know, my, my parents were just going through a divorce. So I was like, okay, you know, I was good planning on moving in with my mom anyways. And I was like, okay, like, you know what, now is kind of the time to, uh, to make the move. So I sold my place. Um, moved in with my mom and, uh, you know, put that money into Bitcoin and then started kind of figuring out what projects I'm going to, what, what I'm going to work on. And, um, the first thing was, I was like, okay, I want to get really deep into a bunch of areas that I haven't had the time to get deep into. And, um, so I, I, I wanted to get more into banking history. I wanted to get more into, you know, monetary history and, uh, and then I wanted to understand Bitcoin much better than my current understanding of it so, was. So this was like 2019. This, yeah. Post, so this was, yeah, entry. yeah. This is post. So this was kind of like in the uh, towards the later part of uh, 2019. I took a few months off after I quit, mm. um, and uh, that that was good for the soul, man. I, I definitely needed that after after a few years. I was kind of you know because like in that job I was I was falling out of shape. I feel like your life kind of gets out of balance and stuff. Things that. You know, I, uh, I was prioritizing before I wanted to kind of get, get my feet back under me and start going to the doctor again and I stuff that like too. that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so I, t- I kind of took like that summer off and then it was kind of like the end of 2019 is when I got cracking. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, um, well, and, and if I could just say, man, like, <clears throat> I mean, I, I don't know. So first I want to, I want to wax poetically a little bit about your book yeah. because you have a, a re- you have like five essays, which I guess you would consider chapters in the book um, on like the history of banking and the history of money. And they're very thorough, like very in-depth. You, you touch on a lot of history, a lot of topics um, that I, like I know I've written about and, and I'm not as good of a writer as you. And like none of my blogs have really gotten much attention, mostly because they're a lot like your writings. Like they're very dense. They, they cover a lot of history. They can be a little bit verbose. And, and so what, what immediately struck me about your book first and foremost was that you didn't, you, you didn't pull any punches. Like right in the introduction, you say this book is targeted at somebody who's literate in finance. Um, you know, if you have like a background in, in business or whatever, or you just, you're a hobbyist of these things, you'll get through it with a little bit of Googling, but don't expect me to handhold you through the beginning, which, which I like. And, and I think that there's like a niche for this. Um, mm-hmm with your book where, where like you, you don't pull any punches and you don't 
um, feel the need to apologize for, for jargon or like handhold the reader through the baby steps at the beginning. You're just like, all right, we're going to jump right into this and it's going to be a lot. So open up your mouth. Cause here it comes. And um, it's, and, and, and then you, you jump into like, like I said, like a lot of dense nuanced history that, that I don't hear people talk about as much. Um, mm-hmm. And the only people who really do are Bitcoiners because they're really the only the ones that have uh, have the nuanced understanding to to really grasp and grok banking, not just money, but banking specifically in the history of banking to kind of see where it all went wrong and why Bitcoin is so revolutionary. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I. uh I agree. I think that it's totally like a lot of those areas are just kind of like an untold story that's been going on. And uh, um, when, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Just one more point. The only other thing um, I, one thing that really stuck out to me with your book is that you've got all these footnotes with every single essay, um, but you don't reference any Austrians other than maybe Seyfedean, which I found fascinating because I've, I've written about many of the same topics and covered a lot of the same material, but almost all my sources are Austrian and yet yours are not. And I find that incredibly interesting that you're able to um, deduce a lot of the same, like extract a lot of the same lessons of history and, and put them into the, this, this, you know, very cogent piece of writing that's extremely dense and, and really does a good job covering like the history of banking. And our, our research came from completely different worlds. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I like that you pointed that out. I think um, I one of the okay, so kind of one of the and this is getting a little ahead of where I was in the story, but just like really quickly, um, one of the number one things that I tried to prioritize when I was writing it is I want this to be a document that arms people with information that's very defensible, um, and I wanted it so like when I tried to make it as dense as I could. Um, it's because I don't want to sit here in a pine and I don't want to sit here and get theoretical. I just want to point to factual uh, things that have existed in history. And of course, I have opinion in there. Um, you can't totally remove it, obviously. But um, I wanted to make it something that is I tried to be as balanced as possible. And for that reason, I tried to draw on sources that were from areas that, um, you know, and of course I didn't do this the entire time, but we're from areas that uh, weren't all from one single camp. So most of my banking history comes from the Federal Reserve and essays that were written by uh, Federal Reserve members over the years. Mm. Um, and then I kind of, uh, you know, it, I, the thing is, is the story tells itself. Like mm. the, the information's there. It's just, I, I mean, I just had never heard about it when I was in school. Um, I, I think the only Austrian I, I, I referenced Karl Menger, um, you know, and then a little bit of Hayek, but yeah, I don't, I, I didn't really get uh, cite Rothbard um, much in there. Have you read, have you read a lot of the Austrians works? Like uh, I, I, I've in particular? read, not like I haven't read like cover to cover any, any of their stuff, but I've, I've read bits and pieces. Mm. Yeah. Because yeah. like the the history of money and banking, I mean that is right up your alley. Rothbard's history of money and banking in the U.S. Mm-hmm. That yeah. is you you will love that book. Yeah, there, there's uh, I know it's just like these. It, it, it's it, it's okay. So like I am a probably um, I am an average 
speed reader. I read like 180 words per minute. It's funny because I didn't really know what my reading speed was until I uh, was dating my current girlfriend and we did like a reading speed test and she reads, she was like, you know, all smart and like in all these like IV programs and stuff in high school. And she just like read a ton as a kid and her reading speed is like three times what mine is. Wow. And uh, so and I, I, like, it takes me time to get through some of those things. And it's like, so I, I, I want to get through all of them, but a lot of these old economists just have these like bricks that you have to get through. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, yeah. human and, action um, is a slog, but it's- it is. Yeah. Human action is a slog. So like I've read bits and pieces of it. Um, and you know, like, like just like getting through road to surf them, like, ah, oh, like I almost, you know, I had to like dedicate an entire week mm. and like, um, you know, a, a lot of these books are great, but, uh, it, it, here, the thing is, is like, Another thing that I wanted to prioritize is I wanted to kind of remove myself a bit from discussing theory. Um, like in the beginning, I kind of get into monetary theory, but after that, I kind of just look at historical events. Um, I, it's not that I think anything's wrong with theory. It's just that I think a lot of the literature in economics gets into theory. And I kind of wanted to just give a more practical understanding mm-hmm. and, uh, and kind of move myself away from, oh, let's talk about this theoretically. Mm-hmm. Just you know, so like I tried to move myself away from uh, particularly, I think that there's a ton of literature in Bitcoin right now about, you know, the morality of all of this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not that I really disagree with most of it or anything. It's just that uh, I don't think that makes a strong argument for a lot of people who are interested mm-hmm. in coming into this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I totally I, agree. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, so a lot of it um, presupposes a, a lot of understanding about the 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 dense stuff that nobody wants to write about because it's difficult and painful you know to to sit down and study the history of banking from world war ii up until you know or from the colonial area up until um you know the end of Bretton woods like that is a very dense complicated nuanced subject and it's difficult to even find sources um that that don't paint that information with a certain political narrative or a certain historical narrative totally and it's one of the most valuable. And that's why I, I love your book is because other than Rothbard's history of money and banking, there aren't a lot of places to point to that say, okay, you want to learn why Bitcoin, not just like, why is Bitcoin so, you know, um, nascent, but why is the problem that Bitcoin solves so important? You need, mm-hmm. you need to, you need to dig, you need to really totally. dig to get to the bottom of that one. Totally. And, and that goes like right back to kind of where I was in the story. And it was like, I jumped in and I started digging into all these other different areas and like, not only just with the banking piece and, you know, the monetary history piece, but with, um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to understand kind of Bitcoin at a pretty technical level. I wanted to be, because just like anything, like in my prior job, it was like, if I wanted to understand a company then I needed to model it, I needed to model as many details about it as I could. And, um, you know, I, 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 for Bitcoin, I was like, okay, you know, Jimmy Song wrote his programming Bitcoin book and I had no background in any sort of coding. So I had to like teach myself like a beginner level Python understanding to be able to get through his book. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, I did his book and like, after that, I was kind of like, okay, like now I kind of, I get how Bitcoin works, uh, mm. what's going on under the hood. And, um, uh, you know, all these different areas were things that I was like, okay, for me, somebody who is pretty serious about understanding Bitcoin well, um, I had to go to all these different areas on the internet. Um, and that, there's a bunch of different books. There's a bunch of different blogs. There's a bunch of different essays. Um, 
and just, you know, all these like random articles I found in history. And I had to go to all these pieces and, you know, put these together to really give myself that holistic understanding to where I can be like, okay, you know, I can, I, there aren't really areas that I, you know, feel like, um, I'm not standing on firm ground in anymore. Hmm. And, um, and to kind of get myself to that point was a bitch. And yeah. like, yeah. you know, it's, uh, in that, and it was kind of like in the middle of that process when I started thinking about writing a book and I was just like, well, I should be recording all this, um, because there's so much of this, like I'll crack into like, you know, most people, for example, on the banking piece, most people get pointed, you know, if you're talking to the right people, they're going to point you to like Rothbard or something. Um, but if you talk to, uh, most people, they're kind of like, yeah, I mean, creature of Jekyll Island is where you get your banking history. And, um, and that number one, that book is a brick. I really like that book. Uh, I just think that he spends most of it kind of getting into areas that aren't super defensible and are much mm -hmm. more speculative. Mm -hmm. Uh, but in terms of like, you know, actual bullet points of like events that occurred in history and stuff, mm -hmm. it's, it's a great mm -hmm. reference point. And like, he guided me to a lot of different areas when I read that, but it's like, nobody has a time to read that book right. and you can pretty much synthesize the most like salient aspects of that book into a pretty short amount of content. And, um, so like that was kind of my goal is with a lot of this stuff, it's just like, get a lot of this together, get a lot of these pieces, synthesize them into like the most you know, relevant areas to understanding the story of what is the problem that Bitcoin solves. And, um, and, you know, piecing that all together. And then on the Bitcoin side, I also thought that for people with my background who like don't understand computers and don't understand coding and all of these things, um, synthesizing the technical discussion around Bitcoin in a way that would make it easier for people with my background to understand, which I think there's going to be a ton of people coming out of traditional finance into this world. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so like, and it, it's not to say that, you know, I, I, I'm not limiting the book to that. Um, number one, because it's not in my interest to do so. Uh, but also it's just like, um, I, I think most people can kind of get through it. It's just like from the perspective of which I was writing it, I was like, if you're somebody with like a, you know, finance background, uh, this is the story that I think is going to be pretty hard for you to argue against. And I had a lot of, you know, former colleagues and, you know, friends and stuff who were very skeptical of Bitcoin that I kind of had in mind when I was writing it. Mm -hmm. I was just like, this is, this is the most defensible story. And, you know, you guys can't argue with this one. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, but yeah. So that, yeah, that was one of my goals is just like, it, it, it's like when you get into Bitcoin, you have to get into this whole like curriculum. And, uh, and I wanted to create a really good starting place that was much more efficient for people who just don't have a ton of time and, you know, can't, <laughs> aren't, aren't doing what I did to get into all this. Yeah. I don't know if you ever listened to the episode Ben and I did like two years ago, two or three years ago called the Bitcoin spectrum on, mm -hmm. uh, on this podcast, but it was basically the whole topic was all of the different various aspects of Bitcoin that you need to become not necessarily an expert in, but you need to at least be um, transcend the layman's understanding. Uh, you know, if, if you want to really, really get Bitcoin, you have to dip your toe into all these different things. Yep. Yep, exactly. It's like Bitcoin is this technology that is... Uh, you know, it fits into the confluence of all these different areas, like, you know, and like the only way it could have ever emerged was because we had this cypherpunk movement of these like brilliant people who were experts and had like an understanding at all these like ob obscure areas. It's like, I, I mean, how many computer scientists do you meet that have read a ton of Austrian economics history? Like, you know, that didn't exist. And that's the only reason they were capable of creating such a thing. And like, um, Special so, yeah, people, it, man. I don't know. Special, special, special people. Exactly. 
uh, and it, it's, it's cool, but like, yeah, you gotta, you gotta learn a bunch of different shit to totally understand it. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, like, I think it's clear that Satoshi had like some understanding of, you know, like the, the problems with money and, and banking and those types mm-hmm. of things, obviously, I mean, cause he solved the problem, but mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, like we don't really know that much about him. Like what did he read sure. a ton of Rothbard? I, I don't know. Like it, it'd be sure. interesting to know. Um, sure. Not that I want to really care like who he is, but to know more about him or like his background and like to, you know, solving the problem the way he did by just taking all of these pre-existing technical pieces and fitting them together. I mean, that's a lot of software development in and of itself, um, mm-hmm. but to have done it so elegantly and then to just step away. I mean, I, I, I am forever confounded by the fact that somebody who built something so um, world-changing, you know, stepped away from it. Um, and, and we will likely never know who it was. I mean, that, that's truly probably one of the greatest stories of humanity i mean it's, I, it's incredible yeah. I, I i yeah i i agree and i mean i'm 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 personally biased but i i can't think of like really anything that's really better to me it's uh um i don't know <laughs> like he's just uh he, he he's he's something more than human is the way that i kind of look at it he, he was a very special person yeah i don't know all right uh, we could get into the mythos, but right. It's, uh, yeah, that I, I I get kind of upset when people um try to pin down like who he was or anything like that because it's it's obvious to me um, that whoever it was, you know, went to lengths to not reveal themselves and because right. they didn't want to be identified. And I think it sort of does him a disservice. It's just kind of disrespectful to to say, oh, I think it's so and so, or I think it's, it's it doesn't matter. And clearly, they didn't want you to know. Totally. Um, and that's that's something totally yeah it's funny like how common that is with like you know no corners that i'll talk to um it's interesting how much people fixate on that aspect so your book is called the seventh property and i don't do you want me to should i spoil it for the for the listeners or do you want to discover that for yourself i'm I'm fine with you know we getting into all that that's fine i mean and um uh yeah yeah i I don't think it spoils anything i i i'd say like the primary value add isn't even you know like that concept i just think that that's like that's just a really good way to kind of frame it but Mm. um yeah i think the primary value adds more just like it's comprehensive technical resource and stuff but no let's let's uh let's get into it right so um you you list the six properties of money uh, which you say, you know, and, and this is not new information um, by any means, but you, right. you talk about, you know, portability, divisibility, saleability, uh, fungibility, divisibility. Uh, I think that that was five. So I'd probably miss one. Uh, scarcity. Scarcity. Right. And and we all know those concepts. We talk about those concepts. Um, anybody who's in Bitcoin is, is at least familiar with those ideas. And then you propose that the seventh property of money, which Bitcoin brings to the table, is the immutability side. Um, and I'm assuming more than anything here, you're talking about like immutability of the monetary policy, immutability of um, the network sort of like as, a, as an entity, as an organism that functions and continues to function. Um, is that correct? So, yeah, I think that... Um... Yeah, there it's there, there's a lot of ways you can kind of apply it, but like um, 
I think the best kind of framework to think about it in is basically that. So when I was first writing it, um, I didn't, the word I actually used for the seventh property wasn't immutability. Um, it was, uh, I was just using the concept and I was struggling to figure out how I wanted to frame it, but I was using the concept of, okay, the decentralization of the production and storage of money hmm. is, um, that was how I was thinking about what the seventh property of money was. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like to find that like, you know, in antiquity and with these primitive forms of money that emerged, like the production and storage of money was pretty, pretty decentralized because people lived in like localized groups and everybody was verifying money themselves. Everybody's creating money themselves. Um, everybody's storing money themselves. And, uh, and that that kind of changed over time. And we, at each step in the evolutionary monetary process, we traded trust for efficiency. Um, which is something that, you know, I can't say anybody quite had the foresight of how these things would go for the same reason that most people didn't have the foresight of how governments would, you know, take advantage of, you know, complex structured societies over time as well. But eventually, you know, um, you know, the U.S. came along and decided we wanted to create a democracy uh, to prevent that moral hazard that's kind of inherent in that model between the principal and the agent. And um, I think with money, that's kind of the same thing needs to happen in money as well. Um, so that was kind of how I was initially thinking about it. And then, uh, you know, the word it's almost like you need to tie in a, um, an ability at the end of it to make it a, like a property. And um, so I. Uh, it was actually interesting. Um, it was kind of towards the end that I was writing it. Um, I saw some sort of, well, it was, it was like this Twitter conversation and it was actually Eric Voorhees who mentioned the concept. And he was like, yeah, like, you know, the money of, uh, it was something along the lines of like, you know, Bitcoin is like, you know, this immutable money. And, um, and then that got me thinking, I was like, oh, you know, like it's, uh, it's the decentralization of production and storage of money that ultimately enables a property of money um, that should be considered ideal in money. And that's, that's the key distinction is when you think about the properties of money, you need to, it's not that, you know, money can't exist if uh, uh, you know, one of the properties doesn't exist and, you mm -hmm. know, in, in, in primitive forms of money didn't really have most of the properties, but mm -hmm. they still worked. There's a, there's kind of a sufficient amount, and, you know, actually uh, Nick, Zabo was saying this at the Bitcoin conference. He made this exact point. He's like, um, you know, Bitcoin doesn't need to be a medium of exchange to suffice as money. And I, I totally agree. I think that like some things, there's certain properties where you can you can remove the idea of being a store of value from the idea of being a widely accepted medium of exchange. True. Um, and, I, uh, I like to say that anything can function as money, but some things function better than others. Exactly, exactly. And the, and the whole point of what's good money is what's optimized across all of the properties combined. Right. Um, and it, it, which could be something that's not the best at any of them. Right. And that's what most people kind of look past. Um, but I think, um, uh, yeah, so like with uh, with immutability, you want to think about it from the perspective of it being, you know, what is what is ideal? And ideally, we want a money that uh, has, you know, a monetary uh, it's scarcity and uh, a lot of the other properties that, that are inherent money are things that don't change. And so while Bitcoin is still subject to consensus, and of course we could in some sort of crisis scenario along the world, all of a sudden we're just like, you know what, for whatever reason, we need to double the money supply or something. Then Bitcoin has a mechanism where that very brutally uh, necessary consensus can be achieved to ultimately change the structure of what it is and the probability of that's incredibly, incredibly low, but, um, 
perhaps in a system where literally everybody in the world's interests would be aligned for some sort of change, it's still capable of doing that. Well, um, I don't think, I don't, I think technically, um, I don't know that, I don't know, it starts to get kind of complicated there, but like, I think technically that would fork or that, that probably I would assume would fork. Um, sure. It wouldn't necessarily it, it, be changing Bitcoin. Yeah, right. and that, that's where it gets like you know complex, but of what is Bitcoin, um, and you get right. into, yeah, totally. So and, you know, and we can stay away from whatever that is. I, I don't disagree with you. Um, I, I agree. It's just the idea kind of becomes what I, what I'm trying to say is more like if everybody wanted something new, right? Plus, yeah, then they have the option to switch to. That. I think um, a, a good a good example for that might be like let's say quantum computing goes a long way in the next ten years. And yeah. we start to see rumblings of, you know, SHA-256 is compromised and more and more, um, you know, private keys generated with SHA-256 or hash with SHA-256 are at risk, you know, yeah. as this uh, quantum computing capability, you know, starts to scale and commoditize and everybody kind of disagrees, well, we need to move to, um, you know, like a quantum resistant um hashing algorithm and start getting everybody ready to, you know, like claim keys on this new chain and fork the UTXO set and something like that. Whereas like, I I think is less um, contentious than like doubling a money supply where I I just think that that might be a better example for what you're trying to say there. Yeah. 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 That definitely is a better example. (laughs) Um, But um, you know, not, not to draw too far away from the point, but it's like, um, so is, the 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 idea is basically that you know bitcoin uh, the property of money that should be um immutability basically means that we want money where the rules don't change and um and that is something that i think isn't even a lot of people i think we'll kind of talk about this in the discussion as if it's some sort of like novel concept that bitcoin's created uh, but i think if you really go back to the beginning of money it's just uh it's something that we lost over time and uh, it's something that needs to be revitalized in the system. And um, it's something that before we had the technology um, that we have today, it wasn't totally possible to still maintain all the efficiencies that we gained through these evolutions of money. And, uh, and also be able to have a property like immutability because the, because the reason that we, you know, gravitated away from all that, was because of how inefficient that system was. Mm. But with technology that we have and information transparency and the ability to move you know, information at the speed of light, um, that all enables these properties to exist and still maintain a high degree of efficiency. In fact, we're improving upon the efficiency of the incumbent system. So, um, and that's just, you know, that's true innovation. So I think, it, yeah, go ahead. I, I think I'm understanding your point a little better now. So when you say immutability, what you're meaning is the immutability of the properties of Bitcoin that make it a good money, mm-hmm. which come about via decentralizing the production and storage of Bitcoin, the monetary medium. Right, right, right. Exactly. So um, immutability, and I, I just want to repeat it because I think that that's, that's really good. The immutability of the properties of Bitcoin that make it a good money. You, it's hard to find that immutability in, in something like gold because it doesn't scale and, you know, on, go read the first half of the book and you get it. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Now, now I understand. It, a it, it gets, a, it gets a little tricky because like when you think about the properties of money, um, 
some of them are dependent upon each other. Mm. Um, it just like what you're calling out right now. Um, so like the immutability of the properties of money mm. and it's like, okay. And then the same, you could apply a similar idea to like, you know, the acceptability is a property, you know, the acceptability of, you know, all like the acceptability property only exists. And that's like the last remaining property that Bitcoin has yet to achieve. It's not widely accepted enough relative to a lot of other forms of money that exist, but, um, the that is contingent upon the existence of all the other properties before you can have that one as well yeah and i think too there's like degrees of i don't want to say degrees of immutability because that's that that doesn't even make sense but Mm. um so like gold is a good example right where generally speaking we can presuppose that the stock to flow isn't going to change that much so we Mm. know it's scarce right but theoretically some scientists could develop a, a way to rearrange atoms in a certain way and, you know, alchemize, 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 I don't know. Yeah. Alchemize led into gold, right? It, yeah. I'm not saying that it, that it's going to happen, but it could happen, right? It's not impossible. Totally. So we could just find out, oh, there's, there's more gold. You know, we can double the circulating supply of gold because we found this cache of gold at the bottom of Crater Lake or something. I don't, you know, I don't, right. but right. it's possible. It's theoretically possible with Bitcoin. Yep. It's not, it's, it's, it's impro it's it's in, it's impossible just mathematically to for that for that supply schedule to change um and i think that that's it demonstrates like the difference between yes both are scarce one is immutably scarce mm-hmm. oh I, and you know of course kind of like going back to what we were talking about earlier of course there are uh there are crazy scenarios where like you know um because the idea is like i i what i don't like to do is get too caught up in the idea of like, okay, like, you know, what is happening with like the specific tech? Um, it's more like, what are the goals for society of money that we care about? And uh, if that could change, and it's like, you know, it's like, there's technically like, you know, crazy scenarios where like, you know, Bitcoin could quote unquote change from um, extreme cases, but those aren't things that, um, those aren't things that I've determined to be, um, you know, against any of its long-term value, if that makes sense. Mm. There, there, there are scenarios that I think are, you know, um, so, so improbable that, you know, like the quantum computing argument or something, for example. And then also like, you know, if that happened that, that, you know, Bitcoin would be the least of our problems. Um, but it's like, it's not like they're impossible or something. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. So I pretty much, uh, walked through all the stuff that I wanted to cover. So what, what do you want to talk about that we haven't uh, hit on yet? Or do you want to circle back to anything? Um, I'm trying to think. So, yeah, I mean, we covered, we covered a pretty good amount of it. I mean, I, I guess I can just kind of talk high level. Like it's, uh, you know, this book is kind of like, it's the book that I wish uh, I had been given when I first discovered. Bitcoin. Oh, I love that, man. That's great. Yeah. And, uh, that, that's, uh, that, that is the best way for me to kind of think about it. And, um, with, so kind of how I broke it down is like, there's kind of three main section or four main sections. Um, there's the theory history of money beginning. Um, there is, uh, there's a section on banking and central banking. And I kind of just talk about, um, you know, how banking or, or at least our modern banking systems emerged. It gets, you know, a lot of things emerge in a bunch of different areas at different times in history. Um, but a lot of our modern banking systems were, or our current modern banking system in the U S is pretty much derived from that of England's in the 17th century. And, um, 
I, I, I talk about that and then I get into history of central banking, um, you know, and then I talk about, uh, and then I kind of dig drill down deeper into like the federal reserve and that, you know, there's four central banks that kind of, or three central banks that kind of existed before the federal reserve. And, um, and then the, the big thing that I've never seen, and maybe other people have seen it. Um, but the big thing that I wrote, I, I feel like it's kind of like the most unappreciated chapter that I wrote. Cause I don't get as much feedback on it, but I wrote this chapter on kind of like how the federal reserve works. Just like, here's the, you know, 40, 30 minute read on everything that, you know, to set, kind of synthesize what the Federal Reserve does and um, how that all ripples through our banking system in kind of an organized manner. And um, which is kind of crazy. It's just like, it's kind of crazy to me that there isn't like the only stuff that you can find are like, it's either very technical papers that don't give you any sort of background or incredibly oversimplified information. Like, you know, um, what's that finance website? Uh, Investopedia. Investopedia. Yeah. Like an Investopedia explanation or something. Mm. So like, um, yeah, so it, you know, I cover that in that section as well. And then I kind of get into, uh, you know, I give like a little brief idea of, uh, you know, where we're at today with the current economy. And, mm. um, uh, you know, I kind of just talked through a bit of like Ray Dalio's thesis about long-term debt cycles and mm -hmm. break that down for mm -hmm. people. Um, and then a few other bits and pieces that I think are pretty relevant about, you know, what's happened with this like whole, you know, COVID uh, lending policies and your just general Federal Reserve stimulus policies that kind of emerged out of all of this. Um, it's kind of crazy. And it's one of those things that I kind of just have on my to-do list. But if you dig into what happened with this stimulus that was provided, um, it's a... Uh, it's complicated, but in like the congressional report, um, you see really quickly that they actually had to create, like when you go and you look at the federal reserve balance sheet, they had to create these like four different entities to provide a lot of this stimulus through just because it would be like legally in conflict with the mandate of the federal reserve. Hmm. Um, hmm. which was really interesting to me that I, I, I don't know, maybe it exists somewhere and I haven't seen it, but I didn't see anybody writing about that. And I thought that was kind of crazy. Uh, but I touch on that, uh, some of those programs in the book. And it's something that I kind of want to dig into in the future. Um, but I think it was such, uh, this whole pandemic was such a power grab for the Federal Reserve, not just from the perspective of, oh, they, you know, increased the money supply 30, whatever percent. Um, but from a legal perspective, they actually kind of fundamentally changed. From, people talk about the Federal Reserve as being this quasi-private, quasi-public type of agency. And it does kind of exist in this weird realm um, where they say it's one thing kind of legally, but in a practical form, it's actually the opposite. And um, I think that uh, that a similar concept has kind of emerged where it's also kind of this quasi fiscal agency now, because mm -hmm. the actual U.S. Treasury backstopped a lot of the, the liability of some of these lending programs. Mm -hmm. Now, whether or not that liability will ever be drawn on, I think is incredibly unlikely, but nonetheless, the fact that that happened and nobody was told about that, it's technically just buried in this congressional report. Mm -hmm. Like that is beyond me. I figured that'd be on the wall street journal mm -hmm. or something. No, it's, it's, it's incestuous. It's right. It's disgusting. Right. 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 Um, yeah, sorry. So I went on a I went on a bit of a tangent there, but anyways, that's uh that's some of the stuff in the banking system section. No, I th and then I think it's great, man. And and I think the uh, the credit cycle stuff is 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 great too. I mean, I mean, I you know I know Ray Dalio is like really popular, but I do have to wonder like how many people actually read his stuff and, and even understand what he's saying because, you know, I 
man, I just like, I remember, well, and, and, and uh, Greg Foss says this all the time. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but like the only people who really know what's going on are the, are the credit traders, right? Because they're the ones who really dig in and understand the markets and understand why things happen behind the scenes the way that they do. And you know, like so many people, they're just equity traders and yeah, they understand equities, but they don't understand what drives the market. Um, mm-hmm. They just know equities go up and equities go down and, and yeah. less and less to do with value of fundamentals these days, at least on the retail market. Um, oh, totally. And, you know, like I can remember, I, I talk about this a lot, but it's just because it was really formative for me watching the bond yield curve invert in, in 2018. And, you know, the Fed publishes a lot of really good research. They publish a lot of really good research, particularly with the St. Louis Fred. Yep. yep. And uh, people discount that. And, and I remember mm-hmm. prior to watching the bond yield curve invert, I had been reading research that the Fed published that when there's a bond yield curve inversion in the 10 and the two year, and it correlates with low unemployment, it means that you're going to have a recession in the next two years. And yep. that's exactly what happened. And I can remember having this conversation with a coworker because in 2018, he had told me that he had just sold all of his Bitcoin and went all in on stocks. I'm like, dude, and I pulled up the 10 and two year and I showed him and I'm like, dude, the bond yield curve just inverted. You should be doing the exact opposite of that right now. And that was a really profitable trade. And it wasn't like, I'm not, it wasn't because I was privy to like some incredibly, you know, like arcane understanding or, or that I'm a genius or anything. It was just that I, I, you know, like I, I saw that the Fed had to put out this research. I looked into it. I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. 10 and two year yield inverts. Like that makes a lot of sense. You know, like that's just basically predicting systemic risk. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. that really all it is, it's really all to break it down extremely simply. And the low unemployment thing just means we've reached like a saturation point, right. With, with in the business cycle where things need to correct because you shouldn't have that, that low of unemployment. It's not normal uh, because yep. it means that there's just a lot of unproductive activity going on. Jobs need to be yep. redistributed. Um, and then to see that play out. Right. And, and when COVID happened to just have this totally different perspective, everyone else who's like, well, of course they had to print, you know, $20 trillion or fucking whatever. Um, the COVID destroyed the economy. I'm like, no, this started 18 months ago. This started two years ago. Have you not, did you not see they were doing, the Fed was doing reverse repurchase agreements back in October. And like right. people look at, they just totally. glaze over because they have no idea what you're talking about. But like, right. no, like this, you can, you can predict this in advance. This is insane. Right. Right. It's like a superpower. Yeah, totally. And that, that, yeah, I call out that same point and yeah. in the market piece, just like, uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that we had this like blow up in the repo market in October 2019, and then people are like blaming all this on the pandemic. It's just like, no, like this has been going on for so I mean, hell, because I, I thought that we were going to have the crash back in like 2016. Um, well, we started to have those massive crashes over in the uh, in the um, uh, Asian markets and uh, China had like a huge sell off in 2016. And uh, that, that was one thing that also kind of like really was pushing me uh, into thinking about Bitcoin is because like, um, back then my, uh, you know, buddy of mine and I, we were both looking at ways to like short the Japanese stock market. Mm. And, um, and after kind of digging deep into that, I was just like, I don't know how this ends. And, um, right. I, I, I don't know. I mean, these guys are just going to keep buying their equity market. And, um, I, I, I couldn't figure out where, you know, what, what is the, gonna, where is the hole in the ship that's ultimately going to burst. And, um, and yeah, and that's what kind of got me starting to think about Bitcoin more. Um, but yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, there's the, the dislocations are evident and they've been around for a while. It's just totally like removed from the public narrative. 
Yeah, the the Japan thing is is interesting, isn't it? And I I brought this. I don't know if you got a chance to watch the presentation Ben and I did at the conference, but uh, we talk about Japanification, and we used it in the context of nationalization. Um, and we got a lot of like criticism for even bringing that up because they're like, oh, Japan isn't a good example because of X, Y, and Z and debt arbitrage and blah 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 blah. But we were only trying to use it to to say, okay, this is what happens when your central bank just keeps printing money and buying shit. It's nationalization yep. of the of the means of production. Exactly. Right? Because if the government owns all the equity, well, then the government owns everything. Yeah. Um, I, I. And and yeah, where where does it end? Well, it ends in total total fascism total authoritarianism because if the government right. owns all the means of production well then you're now in a completely authoritarian society right right yeah that's a good point yep that, yep that, that is that is kind of where it ends up and i think like you know today back then when we i think it was close to like 20 percent of their equity market value is you know purchased by some sort of like government entity but i, I don't even know where it's at today but it's probably much higher i think so i think it's the same yeah. with the uh the Swiss bank. Mm -hmm. I believe that they own a lot of equity as well. Interesting. I didn't know that. I think it's the Swiss bank. I could be mistaken. Uh, huh. Well, uh, anything else you want to talk about or you want to wrap this up? Um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll kind of just finish like my, uh, my little walk. Oh, sorry. I keep um, interrupting you. No, no, don't worry about it. Um, yeah. So like, I mean, the first half is just the money and banking piece I talked about. And then the, uh, the end is like with Bitcoin, um, I kind of wanted to get, I, I, I got it to a level of like technical explanation that I thought um, was necessary for me to kind of get comfortable with Bitcoin. And there was a lot of topics that, um, you know, like for, for me to understand Bitcoin, it was like, you know, so, okay. So a lot of people read like the Bitcoin standard and like that has a pretty high level understanding of like how Bitcoin works in it. Um, and, you know, for me, it was like, I read Mastering Bitcoin. Um, and then I did Jimmy Song's like programming Bitcoin book. And I think through all that experience, there's kind of a lot of topics that I thought could be kind of synthesized down um, and explained much more quickly. Like Mastering Bitcoin is kind of a longer read and, uh, and it's an awesome read. Um, but I think that there's a lot of areas that most people who want to understand Bitcoin, you don't really need to get into when you're getting into mastering Bitcoin. And so I kind of, um, and so there's, there's a lot of areas that I, I think are totally worth understanding, but may not be the first things that you need to understand. Um, but more just the technical explanation that shows you how the incentives of the entire system work. Um, that's kind of what I focus the most on because that's what you need to get your head around to really have the aha moment of like, mm -hmm. Oh, Bitcoin is going to do this and it's going to do it well. And um, so I kind of get down to that type of technical explanation. So it's not, it's not as uh, broad as some of the other explainers, but I think it gets, uh, you know, to a certain level of depth that'll get you pretty comfortable more so than the average resource. Um, and then at the end of it, I just kind of tie it all together. I kind of go back to, okay, what are the monetary properties? How does Bitcoin compare um, to all other forms of or all the categories of money throughout history and um you know just do side by side comparisons of all that from a qualitative perspective which is kind of the original framework that i bring up at the very beginning of the book so i tie it all back together with that and then i just kind of walk through a bunch of uh criticisms of bitcoin and my response to those which um um you know i i, I think that most of those areas are I, I feel pretty comfortable about some of those arguments but um it's it's a tricky area. I wanted to address all the criticisms, but you know, if there's uh, if there's anything I've learned as I've become a young adult, it's that uh, 
you know, when I look back on myself from three years ago, I definitely shake my head at a lot of the things that I would say. And when I got into that criticism section, I was like, oh, man, like, I don't really know it now. But I know in three years, I'm going to be like, you idiot. Like, that was yeah. a terrible argument, you know. Um, I hate past me. I was such yeah, past me, man. God, that guy. Moron. That fucking guy. <laughs> but yeah, so that and that that's pretty much the book. Um, and then there was a, there was one guy on Twitter who had a question. He said, uh, "Will the will the revolution be peaceful, or is this an impossible wish with such a transition regarding so many power dynamics?" Then um, I think that that's a question. I think that you know, I wouldn't put my uh, I, I wouldn't bet on anybody's answer to that. Mm. Um, but it's a, it's an incredibly complex and broad question that I, I don't know if anybody can really comprehend that right now. Um, but uh, I, I think my take on all this that I, the one piece about that, that I kind of want to call out is I think that a lot of people overlook how bad the change is going to be. Mm. Um, it's going to, everybody gets optimistic. Like, Oh, we own a bunch of Bitcoin and everything's going to be fine. It's like for us to get to a new world where we operate off of Bitcoin as a base layer, decentralized money for a new financial system means like the entire, the, the entire financial system is going to have to kind of restructure. A, a um, lot of things got to fall first. A, it's going to be a lot of pain before we get to like a really prosperous environment. You know, I, I am, I am very, I'm a firm believer that it is the best thing for the world, but like we've been taking steroids for so long and um, you know, we gotta, we gotta come down off of that before we can get back and, you know, resume a healthy, sustainable growth. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, Greg, I was speaking with Greg Foss about this in Miami, and he he said something that kind of colored my thinking about this a little mm -hmm. bit. Uh, he said that we want these two systems to exist in tandem with one another for as long as possible. Totally um, agree. Which I, yeah, yep. I tend to agree with. Um, but I don't think that that can go on forever. Yeah. Because um, it was Mises that said there is no avoiding the inevitable bust the inevitable deflationary bust at the end of monetary and credit expansion and i believe that yep. like with all my heart i believe that um mm -hmm. and i think that you even bitcoin might make you know if if and that's why you want the systems to exist in tandem for as long as possible like just let the dollar system keep doing its thing yep and if it blows up like well then like let's just keep bitcoin riding along the track alongside of it for as long as possible get as many people like comfortable with it and used to it as possible so that when the dollar system does blow up, which it will eventually they cannot keep doing this forever. And some, somehow it will fail. The, that tr the Bitcoin train just kind of keeps going, right? Like right past right. the explosion and we're all on right. board and happy and ready. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think um, kind of on that point of the two systems existing in tandem, um, you know, I, I talk a little bit in the book about the ecosystem of Bitcoin and how, um, you know, a lot of financial services that currently exist in our current system need to be replicated in Bitcoin for it to, you know, be competitive and to function appropriately. Um, and I think that, you know, in order to make that happen in tandem correctly, we need financial service providers to alt somewhat operate in both worlds. And, um, you know, I think that narrative's against a lot of the people who think that, you know, the world is just going to be like self-custody, um, you know, and, uh, um, you know, complete freedom and all that. But I think that, you know, there, there's another aspect of the world that also, um, 
doesn't care about these motives and, uh, you know, wants financial service providers to do other things for them. And I think that probably both of those things will exist in tandem. And I think like if people can kind of bridge the gap between those two areas, that that'll be valuable in, uh, in making this transition more seamless. Um, but, um, but yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a crazy ride, but I'm really glad that I'm alive right now. Hmm. Totally. Yeah. Unprecedented times, but also unprecedented opportunity and unprecedented right. new technology. Um, I, I'm optimistic, you know, almost because I, I feel like I kind of have to be because Bitcoiners yeah. are like the only ones with any optimism in the world left. So we, we <laughs> right. have to carry that torch. Right. Right. <laughs> um, well, so for the listeners, you guys can yeah. find the rough drafts um of eric's book for free on his website <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. he, he might wish i hadn't said that but you can also <laughs> find the book on amazon uh the complete book and that's like the final drafts like more revised better put together uh and obviously physical uh is it available for purchase ebook on amazon i am right at the finish line on that i'm hoping in the next few days i will have the ebook file uploaded and you can get it Sweet. Well, I'm going to put links to both the, the rough drafts on the website and the, the Amazon page in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. I highly encourage it. I think Eric's incredibly underrated for the work that he, I mean, he, how, how long did it take you to write this? Like you, you put some time into this. Okay. Writing. Okay. So I started writing it August uh, 2020 and I finished it February 2021. No, wow. um, okay. but there's a lot of background and reading and stuff that obviously yeah, went into totally. that too. So like, it's, it's kind of hard to say like what information is part of the timeline sure. and all that, but you know, maybe add a few more months to that too. But, uh, I, you, you, it's proof of work, man. Like I, I can tell, I, I'm incredibly impressed. Uh, and I, and I hope that, uh, the listeners listening to this, you know, go check it out and support you, follow you on Twitter. Um, let's, uh, let's get you an audience. You deserve it. Hey, I, I sincerely appreciate it, man. Um, I appreciate you bringing me on and th this is awesome and helping me get an audience. It's great. And um, yeah, this was fun. Oh yeah. And uh, follow Eric on Twitter at Eric Yakes. That's E-R-I-C-Y-A-K-E-S. Yeah. I like to make jokes sometimes. <laughs> Welcome back from the show. Hope you guys liked that. I enjoyed talking to Eric. Eric is a really smart guy. I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from his book. I love seeing people really dig into the history of money and banking. I think it's a very underappreciated and undiscovered, um, untouched academic subject that's pretty important when it comes to understanding Bitcoin and, like I said in our interview, the why Bitcoin, the what problems does Bitcoin solve. If you don't know that, you're not going to understand why Bitcoin is so valuable and why it's incredibly undervalued today. If you like the show, you can find all of our episodes over at BitcoinEchoChamber.com, as well as on the majority of your favorite podcast catchers. Just search for us. You'll probably find us on whichever one you use. There's also an RSS feed on the website. As well, we have a Discord. I don't talk about it too much, but the Discord link is on the website as well if you want to come hang out with me and Ben and all the other tall, handsome, extremely smart and wealthy Bitcoiners who listen to the Bitcoin Echo Chamber in the Discord. We will be there. You can come hang out with us. You can reach out to me at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com, or you can hit me up on Twitter at heavilyarmedc, that's the letter C. I'm always open to talk to you guys, answer any questions, comments, concerns. Um, some of you have reached out to me and told me that despite the fact that you listen to the Bitcoin Echo Chamber, you are not tall, and you are not handsome, and you are not high IQ, and you do not have a hot blonde girlfriend. 
to those of you, I would say just keep listening. You probably haven't reached your saturation point. You will get taller. You will get richer. You will get smarter. That hot blonde is right around the corner. Just keep listening, guys. I'm telling you, it's coming. Anyways, that's enough. Uh, I appreciate you guys listening. I will see you in the next one.